Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people, and I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. This podcast episode contains references to mental illness and to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Just before we start, a bit of news. From now on, if you use Apple Podcasts and you'd like to support Forgotten Australia, you have another option. That is, subscribing to Forgotten Australia Plus. The money goes towards covering research and production costs to keep this podcast independent. Forgotten Australia Plus offers the same benefits and is the same price as the most popular Patreon tier. So, as a thank you, you'll get early ad-free access to future episodes, and you'll also get regular, exclusive bonus episodes. Right now, you can hear the latest bonus episode, The Mad Bomber of Boulder, which is about a forgotten wartime mass murder on the Western Australian goldfields. In the coming weeks, I'll be releasing all previous bonus episodes via Forgotten Australia Plus for Apple subscribers. If you join Forgotten Australia Plus and you'd like a show shout-out, let me know via an Apple review or with an email at ForgottenAustraliaPodcast at gmail.com. Of course, you can still support Forgotten Australia via Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. Alright, on with the show. It's Friday the 3rd of February 1956 and it's business as usual inside and outside Sydney Central Court in Liverpool Street. Every case is different, yet there's one thing you can usually count on, and that is that everyone, magistrates, clerks, coppers, solicitors and barristers, defendants, plaintiffs, witnesses, their friends and family members are trying to look their best. Whether it's wigs and robes, suits with shirts and ties, 
or skirts with blouses and smart jackets, clothes are meant to show respect for the law and for tradition. One of those due to appear today in Central Court is Luba Shishova. With her dark hair, dark eyes and shapely figure, this 32-year-old Russian immigrant is a knockout. A knockout with a fiery temper. Yesterday, when the police came to evict her from her King's Cross residential hotel room, Luba was caught by surprise wearing only a two-piece polka dot swimsuit. Furious, she unleashed a tirade of four-letter words. And that got her collared by the coppers. Now Luba Shishova is in a taxi on the way to face court. Indecent language is a minor matter. Plead guilty, say sorry, and in a few minutes you'll be fined a fiver and be on your way to freedom. Such cases aren't newsworthy, let alone worthy of tabloid front pages. Yet, when Luba Shishova's taxi pulls up and she steps out, heads turn, Eyes widen, jaws drop, and one of Sydney's scrappiest reporters reckons he's got the story of the decade. Cigarette in one hand, purse and tiny bolero cardigan in the other, Luba is wearing only her polka dot bikini and a pair of open-toed pumps. This section of staid 1950s Sydney comes to a shocked standstill. Some citizens are stunned into silence, while others laugh or let out wolf whistles. Daily Mirror Police roundsman Bill Jenkins is standing in the court vestibule's phone booth. He's already on the blower to his editor when he spots Luba. Bill thinks this is bloody marvellous. Even better, for the moment, he's got this exclusively. Bill tells his editor to get a photographer down here pronto. Luba Shoshova is more than happy to play to the camera. Defiant, Exhaling smoke, she stares into the lens as the Daily Mirror's clicker snaps her striding towards the court. Bill follows Luba into the vestibule, where a big crowd of cops and citizens gaze open-mouthed. When Luba walks into the court's office, the clerk there almost collapses in shock. The senior police prosecutor and other top cops go into a hurried conference. What on earth are they going to do about what Bill Jenkins describes as this, quote, amazing and unprecedented incident? The cops tell Luba to go home and get changed, but she refuses. And the thing is, this nearly naked femme fatale isn't actually breaking the law. Luba takes a seat in a drafty corridor, putting her little cardigan around her shoulders. This isn't the first time that Bill has encountered Luba Shishova, but this is without a doubt her most outrageous stunt to date. Bill just has to know what's motivated her to turn up to the hallowed halls of justice wearing a skimpy bikini that'd see her kicked off Bondi Beach. In what he describes as her deep, resonant, Russian-accented voice, which he'll quote in the paper phonetically, she tells him, quote, this is how they arrested me, so this is how I come to court. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. 1950 Sydney produced a couple of really famous eccentric women, and both have been well-remembered and celebrated. Rosalind Norton, the artist best known as the Witch of King's Cross, was the subject of a feature-length documentary just last year. 
B. Miles, the Shakespeare-quoting terror of Sydney's taxi drivers, was the inspiration for Kate Grenville's 1985 novel Lillian's Story, which ten years later became a movie of the same name starring Tony Collette and Ruth Cracknell. But while these two are fondly recalled, their striking contemporary in outrageous eccentricity has been all but forgotten. Luba Shashova was every bit as colourful as Rosalind and B, a big brash personality who courted chaos and controversy. She appeared on the scene in Sydney when tabloid newspapers were increasingly cashing in on the maxim, sex sells. And if bad girl behaviour could be made part of the mix, well, so much the better. Luba Shashova ticked all of these boxes. Yet... Like many eccentrics, she wasn't only in conflict with a conservative and close-minded culture. She was also wrestling with her own mental and emotional demons. This episode's been based on newspaper reports found at the National Library of Australia's Trove database, on microfilms in the State Library of New South Wales, and via newspapers.com. Additionally, thanks to contributions from supporters, I paid to have Luba Shashova's immigration records at the National Archives of Australia digitised, along with a few records from others in her orbit. These, along with records found at ancestry.com.au, give us a clearer picture of Luba's background and her life in Australia. And, as we'll hear, the late Bill Jenkins' memoir, As Crime Goes By, published in 1992, also provided some terrific anecdotes about the woman he called the last wild woman of Sydney. Luba Shashova was born Lubov Medved in Harbin, China, on the 17th of June, 1923. Her father, Clementi, was a wealthy Ukrainian merchant and her mother Matrina looked after Luba and her four siblings. Not a lot is known about the family's life in China. Luba's older sister Vera married a Russian named Alexander Voshikov in Shanghai in February 1937. Five months after that, the Japanese invaded China. The Chinese would resist with assistance from the United States, the United Kingdom and the Soviet Union. Luba was to marry a Russian army officer and they'd have a stormy marriage. Their relationship was made more dramatic because she reportedly joined him with the Chinese 8th Route Army in fighting the Japanese. Luba's husband gave her his surname and a son, Constantine, known as Stanley, who was born in June 1946 in Harbin. We don't know how much Luba's early experiences affected her mentally and emotionally, but given that Japanese-Chinese skirmishes had begun back in 1931, she appears to have spent from age 8 to age 22 in a land that was at war. The Second Sino-Japanese War has been termed the Asian Holocaust. 10 to 25 million Chinese civilians perished, and 4 million Chinese and Japanese soldiers died. Harbin, where Luba and her son were both born, was the scene of Japanese war crimes committed by Unit 731, which conducted hideous experiments on human subjects, killing up to half a million people. Then, of course, after the defeat of the Japanese, China was torn apart by the civil war that resulted in the communist takeover in October 1949. Knowing all of that, it's reasonable to assume Luba experienced some traumatic events. One of these may have been the death of her husband. His fate is unknown. 
but her heritage and upbringing also made her one of the exotic so-called New Australians migrating to our shores after the end of World War II. For instance, she spoke a dozen languages. Luba Shashova arrived in Sydney on the ship Tai Yuan on the 25th of March 1952. She had to register under the 1947 Aliens Act. She listed her sister Vera, who'd already migrated and was living in Darlinghurst, as her Australian contact. Luba's physical particulars were filled out. 5'4", of medium build, with brown eyes and brown hair. She listed her status as married, although she'd later tell Bill Jenkins that she was a widow. Responding to the question, How long do you intend to stay in Australia? Luba printed, in all capital letters, for life. Luba put down her profession as typist, but answered the question about her intended occupation, again in all caps, as any work. The 28-year-old beauty sat her cute five-year-old son on her lap as they had their photo taken together. There's a lot of hope in that photo. New Australians in a new country about to embark on a new life. But mother and son were soon separated. Stan was put into a boy's home from the age of six, so within a year or so of arriving in Australia. As for the reason, he'd much later say he'd been, quote, very emotionally disturbed. Likely, it was his mother's disturbance that also resulted in him being sent away. In the early 1950s, Kings Cross, Darlinghurst and East Sydney were where a lot of new Australians lived and worked. Darlinghurst Road and other side streets were lined with cafes and restaurants, offering new exotic dishes that immigrants had brought with them. Kings Cross was open late. It was a place you could get a coffee, hear jazz and talk politics. This little pocket of Sydney was arguably the most exciting place in an Australia whose chief characteristic was drab grey conformity. Brilliantly, if briefly, Luba Shashova would be the brightest and most fiercely burning star in this Sydney scene. Initially though, she was just another new arrival. Luba worked as a cook in one of the city's hotels. While her immigration form had said she'd do any work, it seemed this job was far from her liking. Soon Luba was turning up the heat in her own special way in this commercial kitchen. As Bill Jenkins recalled in As Crime Goes By, quote, My records show that Luba made her court debut in 1953 when she did a demolition job on a hotel in the city where she was employed as a chef. Bill said that she'd lost her temper and then, quote, I get all the rissoles, the crumbed cutlets, the eggs, the bread, the crockery, and other things, and I tip them all into a garbage bin. Then I get a big stick, and I stir them up. Then I say to the boss, happy counter lunch tomorrow, boss. Then I walk out. Bill claimed that he knew at once Luba Shashova was a star. He remembered her imperious Russian tone as she said, I am not guilty. Bill, in the court, turned to a colleague and whispered, this Sheila is going to give us plenty of good stories. In his memoir, he said, I was right. What's worth remembering is that Luba, like a lot of women at this time, was subjected to unwanted advances and bad behaviour. That she was single, beautiful, and a new Australian meant she would have copped the very worst of it. But anyone taking on Luba Shashova was grabbing a tiger by the tail. She made her debut in Truth in July 1954. The headline? Man lost ear in brawl. 
Luba was in court as a witness to a fight outside a Woolamaloo hotel in January. She testified, quote, A blonde woman came out of the hotel first, followed by a Maltese. Then Tony the Frenchman came out and there was a mess straight away. The Maltese and Tony fight. I tried to stop it. Then I saw the Maltese spit out an ear. Tony was covered in blood. Luba claimed that this mystery blonde woman hadn't stopped the men fighting, so she ran in. Quote, The Maltese man was very furious. He told me, go away or I might kill you. It was very exciting for a minute. In court, Luba was cross-examined by the city's leading criminal defence lawyer, Phil Roach. He elicited that she'd been married but was now single and living alone in Palmer Street, and that she knew both men slightly. Phil Roach asked, You were violent when you were angry? Luba replied, I was not angry and I'm not violent. Mr. Roach, you have bitten people, haven't you? Luba said, never. Never had any trouble with the blonde woman? Luba denied it. It was a curious exchange, given that Tony had said he didn't know his assailant and had been attacked out of the blue. Tony's version was they'd struggled and they'd been pushed out of the hotel. He testified, I was holding him when he bit me on the ear. I put him on the ground and held him, and he said, Enough, and I let him go. Blood was everywhere. When I got up, I saw my ear lying on the footpath. Down the track, when the case came to trial, the earbiter would get a three-year good behaviour bond and be ordered to pay £400 compensation to Tony. In brief reports of this result, despite what had been said by the victim and by Luba, journalists said the fight had been over a woman. Bill Jenkins clarified, recalling the two men had slugged it out because they were both in love with Luba Shishova. He wrote, Luba, so the story goes, had her foot firmly planted on the severed ear when the police arrived. When they asked her why she did so, she replied, so he can only hear half the bloody bullshit questions you coppers are going to ask him. Six months after her truth debut, which included a photo of Luba, she was out for a night with two male friends at a Sydney theatre when she got into an argument about tickets with an usherette. The court heard that Luba punched this woman twice in the face, threw her to the floor and then kicked her. The usherette got up and ran. Luba chased her, took off her shoe and hit the woman in the head. Luba and her male friends made a hasty exit from the theatre before the manager arrived. In court, Luba initially entered a plea of not guilty. She told the magistrate, quote, She assaulted me first. I assaulted her second. She called me a bloody foreigner. I called her a bloody Australian. Hearing this, the magistrate asked whether Luba would like to change her plea. She did, with qualification. Quote, I am guilty as well as she is. We are both guilty. The magistrate didn't see it that way. He fined Luba £7 and ordered her to pay the usherette £1, 12 and 6 in compensation. Luba was then working as a waitress, and this would have represented about two weeks' wages. Luba Shoshova began making waves and news when Sydney's tabloids loved nothing more than photo stories about beautiful women. If they were new Australians and not wearing a lot, then so much the better. Young women who'd recently migrated were encouraged to enter the Sun's Miss New Australia quest. The prizes included a flight around the world, a three-year supply of foundation garments, and a £750 modelling contract with American company Hickory manufacturers of such dainty underthings. 
a typical entry was 18-year-old Lillian Hayoff, who was pictured in a bikini. The Sun called her a, quote, Bulgarian beauty who speaks six languages, before laying out those all-important bust, waist and hip measurements. The quest was open to single girls and women aged 18 to 27 who'd arrived in Australia after September 1945. Meanwhile, the Daily Mirror was at this time morbidly fascinated with pretty women who were in trouble or the victims of tragedy. On the 19th of January 1956, it ran a front-page photo of a Greek New Australian beauty who'd committed suicide. Six days later, another front page splashed another photo of a young Australian woman who'd killed herself. And five days after that came yet another shocking front page. This one reported a close call for a, quote, beautiful new Australian girl who'd been attacked by a youth wielding a knife. This 15-year-old girl had been walking near her home in Manly when she'd been attacked and she'd suffered defensive wounds to her hands. The Daily Mirror ran a big picture of the young victim who, like Luba Shashova, had been born in China to Russian parents before migrating to Australia. Her name? Tanya Verstak and in 1961, she'd become the first migrant to win the Miss Australia competition. Of course, no summer in the 1950s would be complete without that sunny standby story. Bondi Beach's chief inspector, Orb Laidlaw, booting a beauty off the sand for wearing a bikini. In January 1956, the latest victim of this prudery was 19-year-old Judith Ann Liptrot. When she'd been escorted from the beach by Orb, her 21-year-old boyfriend had objected and a scuffle had ensued. That was all the justification the Daily Mirror needed to run a big picture of raven-haired Judith in her offending two-piece swimsuit under the headline, This was too much for Bondi. But the tabloids weren't just obsessed with local bombshells. You were hard-pressed to open a copy of the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mirror or the Sun on any given day and not see one or more international beauties wearing off-the-shoulder dresses with low necklines for maximum decolletage. Wearing just such a frock, Anita Ekberg, the luscious Swedish actress, had stopped traffic outside the Berkeley Hotel in London on New Year's Eve. An astrologer predicted that 1956 big glamour battle would be between Jane Mansfield, pictured reading a book in a polka dot bikini, and Sophia Loren, shown with her skirt billowing up around her shapely thighs. But of course, there was one bombshell to rule them all, Marilyn Monroe. The seven-year itch had just hit Australian cinemas, and it was being promoted everywhere with that iconic image of Marilyn in her white dress standing on the subway vent, laughing ecstatically as she caught a breeze and caught her dress before it went too far up. Off-screen, as every tabloid reported, Marilyn was about to marry Arthur Miller, her third wedding, his second, but newspapers also claimed she'd actually been Prince Rainier of Monaco's first choice for a Cinderella wife before he had to settle for Hollywood star Grace Kelly. But it wasn't only local and global beauties who got tabloid column inches. Sydney journalists loved reporting on two of the city's women. B. Miles, then 54, had the previous year made her epic taxi ride from Sydney to Perth and back, but she was now in court after assaulting a cabbie. B had also given the man an earful. In her defence, she told the magistrate, Mr Bott, that she'd only used insulting words to the taxi driver after, quote, he called me a maggot. That's a nice thing to call a lady. 
The police prosecutor reckoned she ought to be sent to the government psychiatrist. But B said, quote, He would not sign me up. He's on my side. The magistrate, Mr. Bott, fined B. Miles £20, in default of which she'd do 40 days. Far more sensational than old bag lady B. Miles, though, was Rosalind Norton, then 34, who'd been in the news for committing an unnatural offence with her lover, Gavin Greenlees. This act was him whipping her on the butt during an occult ritual. The flagellation caught on film in her studio. Two men had then stolen the horny home movie from Rosalind's flat, made stills and offered them for sale to the sun. These thieves had been arrested and jailed, but Rosalind and Gavin were also to be charged. Artist faces sex charge, read the Daily Mirror headline, over an article in which the arresting detective claimed Rosalind had admitted her studio was a witch's coven and the film was filthy and obscene. The tabloids at this time were a heady stew of buxom bombshells, bikini babes, new Australian beauties, celebrity marriages, tragic women, rowdy eccentric crones prone to violence, and King's Cross femme fatales indulging immoral passions. And, in a flash, Luba Shashova, who was described by one of her own lawyers as a one-woman Russian revolution, would tick all of these boxes. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Luba Shashova's rise to true infamy began when she was hauled into Central Court on the 27th of December 1955 on a vagrancy charge. Luba said she'd quit her job as a cook a month earlier because she was about to get married. This time she'd been arrested in her own room in the Ashfield Private Hotel, the results of complaints made by the manager, Kurt Weddell. Vagrancy meant having insufficient lawful means of support, and Luba protested in court that this was nonsense. Why, she had £700 in a bank account, an expensive refrigerator worth £140, two radiograms worth about 100 quid, and a diamond ring valued at twice that. So, if anything, Luba was a thousandaire. In court, she shouted, quote, I have money. I have never taken a penny from any man. I am strong, I am powerful, and I am a true person. Luba was remanded until the 6th of January on £20 bail. Despite her claims of having wealth, she couldn't pay it and no one would stand for her. That her mother and sister didn't come to her aid would seem to suggest relations were already at this stage quite strained. Luba was to spend New Year's Eve in jail. Six days later, when the case was called, Luba, who Truth had taken to calling Olga from the Volga, turned up with a black eye. Quote, looking gallantly defiant, if a bit woebegone. Now, in addition to the vagrancy beef, she was charged with indecent language, causing malicious injury and malicious damage. She pleaded not guilty to vagrancy and causing injury, but guilty to malicious damage to the value of £5. As Bill Jenkins recorded in the Daily Mirror, quote, During the proceedings, Shishova stamped her feet, banged a table and shouted at the magistrate and witnesses. 
One of the objects of her anger was the constable who'd arrested her in the first place. She thundered, I stayed two weeks in jail because of you. Why don't you look at me? You should be ashamed of yourself. Jenkins recorded her gesticulating wildly when she claimed a diamond ring, now said to be worth £550, had been yanked off her finger by two women while she was in the cells. She also said that Germans had broken into her hotel room and stolen £280, a gold ring, bracelet and a necklace. These men were responsible for the damage that she was being charged for. This garbled defence didn't make much sense at all. Her landlord, Kurt Waddell, had brought suit for her eviction on the grounds of nuisance and annoyance. The landlord, described by Truth as a mousy little man, had all manner of racy allegations against Luba Shashova. She'd danced almost nude on his hotel balcony. Her room was a mess of empty wine and beer bottles. When she bawled him out with indecent language, she did it so loudly it rumbled into the farthest reaches of the hotel. One time, Luba had been partying in her room with four sailors, and when he complained, they'd threatened to beat him up. Luba would choose the gramophone song that she liked and play it at full volume, over and over, at any hour of the day or night. Not to mention, Luba had threatened to kill him on a number of occasions. Mr. Waddell told the court he'd had to call the police repeatedly. He'd subpoenaed a CIB detective, and this officer testified that he'd arrested Luba during drunken parties. Once, when he'd received a complaint she was disturbing the peace, he'd gone to her room and found her dancing, wearing only a blouse, amid all these empty bottles. The magistrate ordered that Luba vacate the Ashfield Private Hotel within two weeks. Then he set her free. His reasoning for this wasn't recorded. Likely he thought that serving two weeks in jail for such minor offences over the holiday season was punishment enough. Truth loved this story, and they loved this luscious Lady Larrikin. Quote, Big and bouncy, the amiable Luba, fondly known in the hurly-burly of Darlinghurst as Olga from the Volga, is fast becoming a legend around the courts. But they hadn't seen anything yet. By Bill Jenkins' count, Luba had actually been in and out of court some 20 times in the past three months. On Tuesday, the 31st of January, 1956, Luba summoned her favourite hack so she could favour him with a scoop. Bill waited outside the Ashfield Private Hotel. The deadline for her departure was now just two days away. Luba arrived on the back of a motorbike. It wasn't like anyone in King's Cross could miss her. Quote, She was wearing a green one-piece swimming costume that swayed with the curves. This curvy one gave Bill the skinny. She was getting married that very night at St. John's Church of England in Darlinghurst. The lucky groom was a 24-year-old Czech immigrant named John Nekvital. Luba had met him on Saturday and proposed to him on Sunday. She said to Bill, Come with me and I talk. Upstairs, in room 22, she introduced husband-to-be John, who was on the bed listening to a Tchaikovsky symphony. I marry him, she told Bill. I say to him, darling, let us get married. I have all the things for the wedding. And he said yes, in front of two witnesses. John took up the whirlwind romantic narrative, confirming to Bill, I said yes, I love her. Luba instructed the reporter, Please be good to give this message to my friends. You tell them. Luba invites all her friends, as she has no time to let them know herself. There will be a big party. The police, she said, weren't invited. 
but she expected that they'd gatecrash anyway. Bill predicted the nuptials would, quote, become as legendary as Lubashishova herself. Bill got to the church on time. So did various King's Cross identities. But it was all in vain. The event of the season, as Bill called it, was a washout. Luba wasn't there. Neither was John. The Daily Mirror reporter found him hiding from her behind a closed door, through which he shouted his explanation. Quote, I met Luba on Saturday, and we had a bit of a party, which lasted over the weekend. Things got a bit hazy, but I do remember Luba asking me to marry her. I thought she was joking, and humoured her by saying yes. I can't say no to any woman. This is all one big mistake. I hardly know the girl. When Bill went around to Luba's place, she was most uncooperative. She opened the door slightly, well, wide enough for a well-framed photo that appeared in the Daily Mirror, and she said, I've got nothing to say, before slamming the door. Bill added a footnote to his article that day, reminding his readers that Luba was about to be evicted. The clock was ticking. Thursday the 2nd of February 1956 arrived, and with it, police arrived at the Ashfield Private Hotel to toss Luba Shashova into the street. Luba was wearing her polka dot bikini, and she wasn't happy. She'd had a hell of a week so far. She'd fallen in love, been ready to marry, been publicly jilted by her lover, and now she was going to be made homeless in King's Cross. But the cops, they didn't care about any of that. So she unleashed a colourful tirade that got her arrested, charged and ordered to face court tomorrow. Luba would show the cops. She'd show everyone the absolute contempt she felt for them. Wherever Luba laid her head that night, in the morning she got into her two-piece swimsuit, climbed into a cab and headed for Central Court. Bill Jenkins would tell it this way in his memoir. Quote, Luba gave me the scoop of the decade in 1956 when I was in the Central Court vestibule phone box making a call to my news editor. He was telling me, why aren't you getting off your big behind and finding us a story? As he berated me, the scoop broke like a thunderclap. Quick boss, I snapped. Get the cameras down to Central. Luba Shashova has just arrived here in a bloody bikini. After she'd told him, as he phrased it in his memoir, quote, this bill is how the bloody coppers pinched me, so this is how I came to court. He spirited her away to the Sentry Hotel to keep her from other journalists. As Bill reported in that day's Daily Mirror, quote, Luba later walked into the saloon bar of a nearby hotel where several men were drinking and ordered a whiskey and a beer chaser. When told she was in a bar strictly reserved for men, she walked into the vestibule and finished her drink sitting and lying on the floor. The Daily Mirror's photographer snapped away, Luba now wearing the bolero cardigan over her bikini top. After she'd had her drinks, she took off for half an hour. When she returned to court, Luba was wearing her bolero top, but still in the bikini bottoms. She put on a black skirt, but left her midriff bare. Magistrate Mr. Bott, who'd recently banged up B. Miles, saw her toned tummy and three times said he'd adjourn proceedings so Luba could go and find more appropriate attire. She was, he said, indecently dressed. Luba didn't beg to differ. She boisterously set him straight, declaring, I think I am perfectly dressed. Mr. Bott said he wasn't going to deal with her indecent language charge until she was wearing something more respectful. 
Luba blurted out, I've got to get married on Saturday. What this was in reference to is anyone's guess. It had seemed fast work even for Luba to have found another would-be hubby in the past couple of days. Mr. Bott was unmoved by her strange marital claim, and he sentenced her to seven days for contempt of court. As police led her away, Luba unleashed another torrent of abuse, which got her another indecent language charge and saw her brought before another magistrate. Luba said to him, quote, Your Honour, I'm getting married on Saturday, please. She asked, Would you give me a chance, please? Is there any chance of getting a bond? It is not fair. I've been in and out of jail for two months. This magistrate wasn't setting her loose on a bond. So off to the cell she went. Once she was transferred, Luba would cool her heels in Long Bay for the next week. While the son had missed her initial bikini appearance, their photographer had been there for her return to court. That afternoon, the paper ran a photo of Luba that took up almost the entire front page, under the screamer, Contempt. The accompanying little article was headlined, Jailed for a Bare Midriff, and it ended with the strange note that Luba had exited the court ranting against the Germans. Truth, meanwhile, ran a Daily Mirror photo of Luba on the hotel floor, its headline proclaiming, Olga from the Volga, beached at the bay. It concluded its write-up, quote, Footnote, it's a safe bet you'll hear more about Luba. Newspaper readers would when Bill Jenkins got a hot tip from an excited young policeman at Central Station. Luba had been transferred from the bay for her hearing on the indecent language charges. Right now, Luba and B. Miles were sharing a cell. A clash of these titans was surely imminent. As the copper said, quote, if B starts spruiking that bloody Shakespeare, Luba will go off like a firecracker. Bill was led to a place near the cell where he could listen, while his cop mate took up a closer vantage point. Twenty minutes passed, but there wasn't a peep, let alone a bellowed quote from the Scottish play followed by Russian screams. The two women weren't catawalling and catfighting, but instead sitting catacornered in the cell just looking at each other, neither of them saying a word. Occasionally, Luba walked around while B watched. But even this anticlimax wasn't going to stop Bill from filing a story. His headline read, Limelight Ladies Meet Darkly. The article began, quote, The two leading ladies of colourful police dramas in Sydney, Luba Shishova and B Miles, met for the first time today. There were no formal introductions or fancy trimmings to their meeting. Their meeting just happened because they were sharing a gloomy cell at Central Police Station. Luba, he said, quote, stalked majestically about the cell. B, in her usual garb, overcoat and eyeshade, sat watching her. Although both are notorious for their ability to express themselves forthrightly, a polite silence reigned. Later that afternoon, Luba fronted court. Did she have anything to say when the police prosecutor read out her indecent language charges? Luba did, quote, Darling, I'm guilty but guilty with an explanation of sorts. Quote, There was another woman saying those words and I was repeating them. She called me all dirty names and I answered her back. It wasn't at all clear to whom Luba was referring. Her indecent language had been used against male police officers. Had there been an actual woman in the mix or was this woman she was talking about a figment of her imagination or perhaps even an aspect of herself? 
The magistrate wasn't there to inquire into her mental state. He simply sighed and fined her £10. Luba was out of court for less than a month. Next, it was charges of forging, uttering orders with intent to defraud, offensive behaviour in a King's Cross restaurant, and that old standby, vagrancy. She was remanded on £100 bail. I didn't find an article following this up, so I'm not sure what her sentence was. But a year later, in February 1957, Luba got serious time. Truth's headline above her smiling face was simply, Married, Jailed. The terror of King's Cross Cafe proprietors, as the paper dubbed her, had supposedly been hitched on Saturday to a man named Wiley. Luba said as much in court. Yet, five days later, she'd been flying solo when she went to the Mocker Coffee Lounge in King's Cross and hit the manager up for £5. Luba said if he didn't pay, there'd be trouble. She'd go get some sailor mates and they'd wreck the place. The manager didn't cough up the cash, so off she went. Fifteen minutes later, she returned, sans sailors, but full of fury. As Truth reported, quote, She latched onto two big pot plants at the entrance to the coffee lounge, bore them inside with athletic ease, and pelted them at the manager. Their gleeful report continued, Luba further revived the flagging spirits of the coffee drinkers by going into an impromptu striptease act on the footpath. What Luba actually did was go one better than Marilyn Monroe, lifting her skirts above her thighs to show she wasn't a fan of underwear. Truth went on. She then executed a nimble jig with a few vulgar bumps and grinds thrown in. As the manager called the cops, Luba cleared out, disappearing into the King's Cross crowds. Next, she popped up at 3 o'clock on Saturday morning at the Darlinghurst Road block of flats where her mother Matrina lived. Luba smashed glass panels to get inside, bringing bleary-eyed residents from their beds to find her walking their halls. Then, trying to find her alleged husband, Luba went to a private hotel and demanded to use the phone. When she was refused, she ripped it out of the wall and took it home. Why? She'd later say, Everyone has a phone but Luba. Then, on Sunday at high noon, she appeared at the Hasty Tasty, a landmark King's Cross cafe that went by the unappetizing nickname, The Chew and Spew. As Truth put it, quote, Luba started blistering the paintwork with her language and then standing athwart the main entrance, she repeated her striptease as at the mocha. Same words, same music. Truth loved this story, and its headline, beside the standby photo of Luba in the polka dot bikini, was... Street Strip got Luba jugged. The paper joked, quote, Judged by the diversity of her exploits over three days last weekend, Luba must have covered King's Cross on a bicycle. That was, the paper said, if she'd been able to ride a bike because surely she'd been drunk. Yet in court, police said Luba had been sober. Luba wasn't having that. She shouted, That's a lie. I was drinking six nights and six days with my new husband. She pleaded guilty to all charges. Magistrate Mr. Bott asked if she had any questions. Bill Jenkins recalled, Yes, she said with her lip curled in her characteristic snarl, Is that manager bastard still alive? Magistrate Bott fined Luba £10 for damages and he sent her to jail for nine months. Truth reckoned when she heard the sentence, she didn't say anything, but, quote, With a saucy shrug, she effected a silent exit to the cells. 
When Luba was released, she lived at Austral near Liverpool. In March 1958, she went back to her mother's place. Not to stay, but to raise hell. Luba wanted money, and she tore and twisted her mother's tongue, lacerating it so badly the 69-year-old woman needed 10 stitches. Luba stole 15 pounds. She was charged, and when the case came to trial in August, Luba claimed she'd only gone to get money owed to her. Her mother, she said, had slapped her and pulled her hair. Luba claimed, quote, I acted only in self-defence. She was convicted and sentenced to two years. Luba was out by February of 1960. That was when she married a British subject named Alexander Ivanovich Blissorukov. This time, nuptials actually happened. Under the Aliens Act, Luba had to notify the government of any marriage. Her new husband was naturalised and he could vote, listing his occupation on electoral rolls as labourer. Luba wasn't naturalised and didn't vote, so we don't know how long she lived with him at Burnett Street in Redfern. Most likely, it wasn't long, because Alexander didn't figure in later reports about Luba. Around 1963, Luba saw her son Stan, who was now 17 years old. The circumstances of their reunion aren't known, but the lad wrote her off as a lost cause. In August 1964, Luba, again working as a cook and living in Bayswater Road, King's Cross, committed another vicious assault after a woman accidentally brushed against her. Luba flew into a rage and an argument turned into a fight. Luba threw an ashtray at this woman, threatened her with a bottle and tried to stab her with a spike-heeled shoe. The woman pushed Luba to the floor. Luba sprang up and grabbed her attacker's hair and went in for the bite. As the woman's friend would testify, quote, When Miss Rowley stepped away, I saw blood pouring down the side of her face and that part of her ear was missing. Luba was charged with causing grievous bodily harm. In her committal hearing, her solicitor didn't apply for bail. He did what likely should have been done years earlier when he asked the magistrate to order Luba to Roselle Psychiatric Centre for examination. Quote, my client has been in and out of jail for five years and her condition has never improved. Long Bay Jail was visited half a day twice a week by consulting psychiatrists who had to care for hundreds of prisoners. While the magistrate regretted this, he said he had no power to commit Luba to an institution. She'd have to go to Long Bay and remain there until her trial. But at the Bay, Luba was lucky enough to see a psychiatrist who, with the agreement of police, committed her to Roselle. She'd have to stay there under care until her trial. But in October 1964, Roselle's medical superintendent took it upon himself to decide Luba was just fine and he set her free without consulting the cops. The results were all too predictable. At a King's Cross hotel, a man abused Luba and she responded by hurling a beer glass at him. She missed her target and instead hit an unoffending man in the face, causing serious lacerations. The police were furious. Luba shouldn't have been free to commit this or any other crime. The magistrate was bewildered that the Roselle superintendent had acted so recklessly. The New South Wales State Minister for Health said he'd order an inquiry into Luba's unlawful and unfortunate release. Luba faced Darlinghurst Quarter Sessions Court on the ear-biting and hotel assault charges in February 1965. She pleaded guilty. 
As the Sydney Morning Herald reported, her lawyer told the court, quote, At most times, she was a hard-working and good-natured woman, and it was only in drink or when she was provoked that she became violent. Luba, the lawyer said, was mentally unbalanced, as sick as a person could be. He asked the judge to place her on a bond on the condition she enter psychiatric care for at least two years. The judge told him and told Luba that that was impossible. He was going to send her to jail because what she suffered from was an ungovernable temper. Luba got 18 months. The judge said she was lucky. He could have given her 10 years for the ear-biting alone. The Daily Mirror's Bill Jenkins was in absolute awe of Luba Shoshova. Four decades later, when he told his stories in As Crime Goes By, he wrote... As a veteran crime reporter, I shared drinks with some pretty startling characters, but none as wild as this former white Russian. This was in itself a startling statement, coming from a man who for decades had known the likes of Razor Queens, Kate Lee and Tilly Devine, hard-charging cops Ray Gunner Kelly and Fred Cray, and crooks like John Chow Hayes, Darcy Dugan and Kevin John Simmons. Bill was one to look back through rose-coloured glasses. For instance, he didn't mention Luba's lengthy jail terms or her psychiatric problems. Bill just thought she was marvellous. Quote, Like a whirlwind that swept through Sydney, she made her mark over a 10-year period and then suddenly disappeared. He rhapsodised. Her sudden departure in many ways heralded the end of an era, the age of Sydney's wild, wild women. Bill wrote that he didn't know what had happened to Luba. His best guess was that she'd settled down to take care of the son he was vaguely aware she'd brought to Australia. Bill was actually wrong about that. Just after Stan had his reunion with Luba, he began his own life of crime. In 1965, he did time in Goulburn Jail. When he got out early the next year, he sent two pounds to one of his former jailmate friends as a birthday present so this bloke could buy tobacco. That was against the regulations. Stan Shoshova was charged, found guilty and sentenced to two months in jail. The severity of this punishment made the front page of the Canberra Times on Anzac Day 1966. A state member thought Stan's jail sentence was, quote, mighty harsh, and he asked the New South Wales Minister for Justice for an inquiry. The minister said Stan had gotten off lightly. He could have been given six months and received a $200 fine, Australia having gone decimal in the past couple of months. Stan continued his life as a criminal. He broke into houses and shops and got caught and convicted and busted out of jail and got recaptured. In 1983, now aged 37, Stan had spent most of his life in some sort of detention. First the boys' homes, then the reformatories, and finally the prisons. While he could read, Stan had never learned to write. So, with the painstaking use of a dictionary, he wrote to the Sun-Herald from Long Bay Jail, offering to tell his story. A journalist named Graham Gamby took an interest and did an interview. Their conversation took place during controversy over the Corrective Services Department in New South Wales, particularly sentencing. 
The thrust of what Stan had to say about this was that non-violent crooks like himself were getting ever harsher sentences, while murderers and rapists were getting off too lightly. But the article's hook, for those who still remembered, was his mother, Luba Shashova. The article gave some insight into the question, whatever became of her. The article, published on the 4th of September 1983, began with this quote from Stan. I saw my mother for the first time in 20 years at Parramatta Jail early this year, and 30 years flashed by in a second. My mother was always a good sort, with plenty of spirit, but the woman I saw that day was old and frail. After the visit, I was devastated. After robbing people all my life, I realised I'd been robbed myself. Luba was now 60, and Stan said she'd mellowed with age and lived quietly in suburbia. He told the journalist, quote, When I saw her 20 years ago, I'd given her up for dead, but now she is living the life she should have 40 years ago. I write to her every week now, but I told her not to come anymore as the experience was too emotional, and I'll be living with her when I get out. If the journalist had any notions about following up on Luba, Stan said it wasn't a good idea. Quote, My old lady don't want any more bad publicity. I think it would be best to leave her alone. Stan recalled his early days in Australia. Quote, I was very emotionally disturbed as a kid. I was a Russian kid in a boy's home, six years old, fighting all the way. When I got tired of fighting, I started escaping because I missed all my family, especially my mother. Stan said he'd escape every night, so he'd be sent to boys' homes in the bush. Quote, I would still escape in my pyjamas and hitchhike to Sydney. Stan's punishments got progressively harsher. Quote, I was sent to Tamworth, where grown men would beat, starve and harass kids for escaping. So this Russian kid finds himself a prisoner all his life. It's a good thing I've got a good sense of humour. Stan said he'd spent 14 of the past 19 years behind prison bars. Most of the time he'd been out was because he'd escaped. He said, quote, Put it this way, I've spent more time being a fugitive on the run, escaping, than I've been a free man on the street. Following his most recent escape and recapture, Stan had been sentenced to five years, and it'd be 1985 before he was going to be eligible for release. On the outside, he said he didn't expect anyone would ever give him a job. It's not clear whether Stan escaped again or actually stuck it out until he was released. But either way, he wouldn't need to worry about getting a job because he went into business for himself, graduating from burglary to armed robberies. Wanted photos of Stanley Shashova were pasted up all over Australia. The little Russian kid now wearing a big bushy Ned Kelly beard. In 1988, an unarmed off-duty detective named Michael McGann recognised Stan even though he'd shaved off his outlaw whiskers. The officer shadowed Stan as he staked out a bank, sports bag in hand. Detective McGann approached and showed his badge. Stan bolted and the policeman gave chase. With the help of some citizens, the copper collared the robber and in his bag they found a 44 caliber revolver and a balaclava. Detective Michael McGann got a Valor Medal. Stanley Shashova got sent back to prison. He was still there as late as 1994. 
his sentence being reviewed to determine if he'd be given another shot at freedom. I've not been able to find out when Luba Shashova died. I'm presuming that she has, given her son said she was frail nearly 40 years ago. If she hasn't, she'd be 99 now. Nor have I found any further trace of Stan, who'd be 76. As for Luba Shashova, as I said at the start of this episode, she's been all but forgotten. Bill Jenkins' five pages on her have been the best account, which Louis Nauer used as the basis for a couple of paragraphs in his book, King's Cross, A Biography. The story of Stan's 1988 arrest was briefly related in Janet Fife Yeoman's 2008 book, Killing Jody, about the murderer, Daryl Suckling. Given how much we Aussies love our colourful characters and larrikins, I think Luba Shashova deserves a little better than that. And I do hope this podcast episode has gone some way to preserving her memory by expanding on her story. If anyone listening knows anything more about Luba or Stanley, I'd love to hear from you. Hit me up via the Forgotten Australia Facebook page, Forgotten Oz Podcast, or via the email ForgottenAustraliaPodcast at gmail.com. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Big thanks to Cloudcatcher Media and Kath Byrne, who recently became Patreon supporters. I really appreciate your help, and your contributions are being used to digitise a lot of files that are going to inform future episodes. We're talking Nazis, UFOs, grenade murderers, and train robbers, just to name a few. All those episodes are coming up, so stay tuned. Also just about to drop is my book, Hanging Ned Kelly, which is out on the 27th of September. You'll be able to hear an exclusive audio preview here very soon. In the meantime, if you'd like to read an excerpt or perhaps order the book for yourself or for a friend, the link is in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.